0: Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. If you've been paying attention these last few weeks, you might have noticed that the religious establishment in first century Galilee doesn't care for Jesus very much, and the feeling is pretty mutual. This story from Mark's Gospel is fairly early in Mark's brief Jesus' biography, and this is already the fifth time that Jesus has tangled with the Pharisees. This, is the story, this story is the fifth of five consecutive narratives that have become known collectively as controversies with the Pharisees. One Saturday, presumably like every other Sabbath in his brief existence, Jesus goes to the synagogue, presumably as a member of the congregation rather than as the presiding rabbi. And Mark tells us that at the congregation with Jesus that day was a man with a withered hand. That's all Mark tells us about that, just a withered hand. Maybe he had an agricultural accident that crushed his hand, or maybe he had a stroke that left his right arm dangling, limp and loose and useless at his side. Mark also tells us that they watched him. Now the antecedent referent for that plural pronoun is actually quite a ways back in the narrative, but there's no mystery about who they are. They are the scribes and the Pharisees, the respected religious authorities from the day, the vestry, the session, the trustees, the seminary professors. They watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus knows they're watching him. So look what happens next he deliberately provokes this confrontation. He calls the man with the paralyzed hand, up forward, front and center, and turns to his antagonists and says provocatively, is it legal to heal or to kill on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm? This shuts them up. For the moment, at least, they have nothing to say. And Mark tells us that Jesus is angry. He is grieved by their hardness of heart. This is one of only two places in this gospel where Mark tells us that Jesus is angry. So Jesus tells us that. So Mark tells us that Jesus tells the man with the, to, with the withered hand to stretch it out, and instantly it is made whole and well. Jesus heals this man's limp and lifeless limb not out of kindness or compassion, but out of anger. And then Mark tells us that the Pharisees went out. Immediately. It's one of Mark's favorite words. The Pharisees went out immediately to conspire against him to discover how they might destroy him. This all happens in the third chapter of Mark's brief Jesus biography in the first few days of his public ministry. Jesus' grisly end is lurking already in his first beginnings like a sleeping but emergent. Malignancy. This miracle is less a kindness than an agenda. Jesus brings this whole mess upon himself with clear and deliberate intent and he does it because he knows why he has come. He does it because he has a point to make and his point is that the religion he was born to and raised in and loves more than anything else on earth has become twisted by upended priorities into an ugly caricature of its lovely origins. And sometimes the only way to make a point so clear that nobody will ever miss it is to sacrifice yourself on the sinister altar of towering error. It happens so quickly we don't have a chance to stop it or so slowly and gradually, it's invisible to the casual eye, religion and human institutions of every kind, like, I don't know, Penn State or Syracuse University, become their own raison d'etre. Institutions forget why they exist and metastasize into dire pathologies. They begin to, to value their own survival over the individuals they were created to serve. The synagogue in Mark's story is a good example. They've let religious regulation trump human well-being. Now, Religious regulation is a good thing. It's a good thing to keep the Sabbath day holy, but not if it impedes human health. As Jesus put it elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. Winning football games or basketball games is a good thing. The value of a good Athletic program to these universities is of incalculable worth, but not if it destroys your integrity, not if it crushes human individuals. And these guys in the synagogue are as tone-deaf to the music of human community and as blind to their own common humanity as Gil Gilpo and those sophomoric frat boys at the University of Oklahoma. And universities and churches are just as guilty of this as the synagogue in Mark's story. A few years ago in Brazil, a young woman, 15 weeks pregnant, went to an abortion clinic to see if she could qualify for that procedure. In Brazil, the only reason you can get an abortion is in the case of rape or in the case when the mother's health is in jeopardy. And after much back-and-forth wrangling, the doctors finally decided that she would qualify on both counts, and she received an abortion. But I misled you when I said that she was a young woman. She was nine years old. She was about four feet tall and weighed 79 pounds. She'd been raped by her stepfather, and she was carrying twins. When Archbishop Jose Cardosa Sobrino heard about the abortion, He instantly excommunicated the doctors who performed it and the mother who allowed it. The stepfather, who'd been having sex with his stepdaughter for months, is still a member in good standing of the Roman Catholic Church. When the doctors told the archbishop that the girl's hips were too immature to deliver a baby, let alone twins, the archbishop said, well, she could have had a cesarean. Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God, someone once said. Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God, but what appears is the church. Yes, a little bit of a disappointment sometimes. We need the church. We need our human institutions, our bureaucracies, our rules, our regulations. They're the only way we can do good on this earth, but without vigilance. Religion, for example, ossifies and becomes arthritic, sclerotic, and bureaucratic. It becomes moribund, mean, and mediocre, and loses sight of the lame, the least, the last, the lost, and the losers that Jesus entrusted to us. I got a pleasant phone call at the office this week. My friend Keith says, Let's go take in a show at Ravinia this summer. I said, Good idea, Keith what do you want to see? see? And he says, you choose. Anything, I'll, I'll, I'll make it happen. What's your first choice? They just posted the schedule on the internet. So I look online and I'm delighted to discover that at Ravinia this summer is one of my favorites, George Gershwin's opera, Porgy and Bess, directed by Bobby McFerrin. A couple of years ago, Porgy and Bess came to Broadway and my wife gave me two tickets for my birthday, and it's one of the greatest birthday presents I've ever gotten. Audra McDonald was playing best. You know who Audra McDonald is? Probably the most beautiful and talented woman on the American stage. Just now, six Tony Awards, more than anybody in history. And those of you who know the opera will know the song, Oh, Dr. Jesus, the pious Serena sings it for the broken, feverish Bess after she's had an encounter with this brutal man crown, her former lover. Oh, Dr. Jesus, who done trouble the water in the Sea of Galilee, and likewise who done cast the devils out of the afflicted time and time again. Oh, Dr. Jesus, what make you ain't lay your hand on this poor sister head and chase the devil out of her down a steep place into the sea like you used to do time and time again? Life this poor cripple up out of the desk, sings Serena. Life this poor cripple up out of the desk. Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God, but sometimes what appears is the kingdom of God. Porgy and Bess premiered in Boston and then on Broadway in September of 1935. Howard University professor Todd Duncan debuted as Porgy, and Ann Brown played the role of Bess. Ann Brown was the first black voice student at Juilliard. The Metropolitan Opera House would not have a black singer for another 20 years. 1955, Marian Anderson. Did you know that the original name of Porgy and Bess was just Porgy? Porgy. The role of Bess was very small originally, and then George Gershwin heard Anne Brown sing. And so he expanded the part of Bess, and Porgy became Porgy and Bess. She would go over to his apartment and sing as he sat at his piano and composed the score. George Gershwin, by the way, died of a brain tumor in 1937, a year after Porgy and Bess had Opened on Broadway. He was 38 years old. Ann Brown was the only Bess he ever heard. So, in the spring of 1936, Porgy and Bess tour Philadelphia and Chicago and Pittsburgh, which were pretty black cities, even black back then. And then the show went on to the National Theater in Washington, D.C., And when Todd Duncan, Porgy, learned that black patrons were excluded from performances at the National Theater, he refused to step foot on the stage. So they made a compromise with him. They said black people can come to the Wednesday and Saturday matinees. This did not satisfy Dr. Duncan. He still refused to go on the stage. So they tried again. All right, black people can come to all performances, but they have to sit in the second balcony. And Dr. Duncan refused still to step on the stage. And so finally the theater caved and the national theater in the national capital was finally integrated. Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God and sometimes what appears is the kingdom of God. It's too bad it often happens outside the church, but still moribund, mean, and mediocre. Much of the time, religion is an easy target. We'll always have the Pharisees to pick on, right? But what about Mother Mary? Mercifully, Mark lets the Pharisees off the hook a little bit by going next to another story of complete cluelessness. Jesus' life is so odd and hard and incomprehensible, even his mother doesn't understand him. You know, he keeps speaking to these demons, keeps having commerce with this invisible spirit world. And people think this is kind of weird. He not only talks about demons, he talks to them. And after a while, the whispers become louder and louder. He has gone out of his mind, they say. And Mother Mary and Jesus' brothers are overhearing this congregation conversation, and they decide something has to be done about it. And so you know what they do, Mother Mary and Jesus' siblings? They hold one of these interventions. Have you ever been part of an intervention? Everybody gathers surreptitiously at an arranged location, and the unsuspecting victim, suspected of alcoholism or addiction, wanders in without knowing what everybody's doing there, and they all say, you're drinking too much and you're going to die or hurt somebody, so we've booked you a flight to Minnesota and a room for 30 days at Hazleton Rehab Center. That's what Mother Mary and Jesus' brothers do for Jesus. You need a therapist, they all say. Jesus, of course, foils their intervention and goes on with his unconventional business. (laughs) When the whole world misunderstands you, at least you always have your family, right? Right? George Burns once said, Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close knit family in another city. <laughs> you know, we're so used to planning our families, we can get very close to choosing our own families. The other day, four year old Bobby, who is a student at our nursery school, came up to Jill Witt, our nursery school director. And he says, with all excitement in his voice, he says, Mrs. Witt, guess what? Jill says, what, Bobby? Bobby says, last night I snuck out of my bedroom and I was listening to my mommy and daddy in their bed. And guess what, Mrs. Witt, we're going to have a new baby. Oh, Bobby says, Mrs. Witt, that's so wonderful. Are you excited about the new baby? He said, yes, I am, Mrs. Witt. If it's a girl, we're going to call it Christina and if it's another boy, we're going to call it quits. <laughs> that, that didn't really happen. That's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's an apocryphal story. That story is apocryphal. But the Holy Family, there's no such thing as pre-planning in the Holy Family. Jesus and Mary are thrust into each other's lives. You might ask, predictably, how could St. Mary, how could Mother Mary misunderstand her beloved son so completely? But that's just the point. In Mark's gospel, she's not St. Mary. In Mark's gospel, she's not the Virgin Mary. There is no virgin mother in this gospel. She gave birth to her son in just the old way. She's just a Palestinian peasant girl. There was no angel Gabriel telling her about the miraculous origin of this strange child. There were no wise men bringing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. There were no adoring shepherds at that manger. There wasn't even a manger. He was just an ordinary carpenter's kid. And she has to try to figure out who he is. In the other Gospels, Mary is a saint. She's the first disciple. She's there every time... He needs her, but not in this gospel. He he is her most beloved, but also most cryptic mystery. And that's why on the fourth Sunday of Lent, as we're making our way from his baptism in the Jordan to his death at Calvary, Mary is a good person for us to encounter because we have to figure him out too. What made us think it would be easy? There has never been anyone like him in the history of the world, and there will never be another. He is not from here. He crossed vast spans of nothingness in the far reaches of intergalactic space to love us into loveliness and to grace us into gracefulness. It's not easy to understand who He is and why He's come, but it is imperative. And so we will follow And if we do, perhaps what will happen is what happened to this wonderful spiritual writer, Barbara Harrison, who says, I see him everywhere. For me, Jesus has gotten into everything. I see him in the timely, unaffected gestures of friendship and in the unruly passions of human love. I see him in the face of a doctor who unexpectedly entered my life At a time when I thought I had little life left, I saw him once and will see him forever in a dead teacher of mine who rescued my injured spirit. I see him in my daughter's merry eyes and in the merry play of her mind. I see him in my son's hands, the hands of a painter who loves the given world. I try to see him in the poor. I make no claim to living a good life. I only know that I would live a worse life without Him. And I would always be lonely. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.